Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BlayDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Monday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I am the other one, Neil Bowe. And today we're joined by freelance writer Andrew King to discuss the merits, or lack thereof, of combatless horror games. Andrew covers games for sites such as GameSpot, Polygon, and our very own Blade Disgusting, as well as hosting the podcast Party Games. So we're thrilled to have a chance to pick his brain on horror. And as always, Neil and I want to hear your thoughts, dear listeners, on our upcoming podcast topics that will be announced every Tuesday. And you can share your thoughts with us on Twitter by tweeting at SafeRoomPod. So without further ado, Andrew, welcome to the show. Howdy, Jay, Neil. It is uh, great to be here. Long time, first time. It's a pleasure to have you and to finally get to chat. You know, we've been uh, fans of your work for a while, and obviously you and Neil have worked together uh, multiple times and whatnot, but uh, it's great to finally get to meet you and uh, pick your brain on uh, some horror games. Yeah, thanks. It's it's great to be here. Uh, Bloody Disgusting was, you know, I've been doing this for about three and a half years, doing freelance about games, and Bloody Disgusting was one of the first... Uh, you know, paid places that I, you know, got to write about games when I was first starting out. So it's great to be on the on the podcast. Well, and we're talking about a, uh, a topic today that uh, people are very divided on in a lot of ways in terms of like, obviously horror games, but the role that combat plays in horror games and sort of the player agency that comes along with that. And I'm curious for you, and since you brought this topic to us, like, what about combatless horror doesn't necessarily work for you? Yeah, uh... I think part of it is just that I I feel like it has a very low hit ratio. I've reviewed like a ton of these games. Like I before we did this podcast, I went back and read back through a bunch of my old reviews, like mostly a bloody disgusting. And I have like, you know, I'm always offering to cover this kind of game and so often it just doesn't uh get the mixture right, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, my biggest thing about it is just that I feel like it breaks a, this genre tends to break a lot of like best practices for what you want from a game, um, which is that, you know, it doesn't seem to have a ton of regard for game feel a lot of the time. Like you are in these games typically moving very slowly. You don't have any verbs, uh, a lot of the time to interact with the world beyond like walking through it. And a lot of the time you can't see anything. That's something that is hard is it's hard to get the gamma right so that it's like, okay, this is dark enough that it's still scary, but bright enough that I can see anything. There's like a lot working against this kind of game. And, um, I feel like most of the time when indie teams take a crack at it, they have a hard time getting all of those elements right. Because I think you can do it right, um, and you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this. But I've been doing some research this week and going back through some of the bigger titles that I had missed, and um, you know, some of those ones definitely get it right. And I think like um, the fact that some of them got it right early made other teams take note and say, "Okay, we should do that." And then when they did it, they didn't get that mixer right. And if you have a little bit too much or too little of something, it really spoils the whole uh, soup, for me at least. It's definitely a delicate balance that I think you're right in that there's a lot of developers out there maybe that see some people do that and they're like, well, you're just kind of walking around. We can present them with a certain amount of scares or environment, but then something is definitely feels lost during the entire course of those games. And it's always very, very apparent. 
Um, there's def- and I think you're right in that it is this very delicate balance that the games have to sort of dance between. And when they don't land that or when they don't hit, it is apparent almost from the outset that like, okay, you kind of are already fine-tuning your brain for the way that this game is going to play out in a way that I think is very predictable. And then when you get to the end of a game like that, that doesn't necessarily capture the essence of that, you're kind of just like, well, I knew that, but I was holding out hope almost that like they were going to really learn the mastery of that at some point. And for me, at least, it always becomes a disappointment. But Neil, for you, how do you kind of feel about uh, combatless horror games? Yeah, I mean, very early on, I came to the same conclusion on a lot of them being taking the wrong ideas, uh, which, you know, is Mm. not inherently a problem with this alone. You know, in every big game craze, you will have plenty of games that take the wrong idea about what the successful game did well. You saw it with Call of Duty, you see it now with Fortnite, you see it with, well, even horror itself, where they started following a more action-orientated route because they thought that's the way to go because horror doesn't sell. But... Mm. Yeah, sorry, that was an air quotes moment to show how much of a tosser I was getting there about it. But um, Yeah, so it was bad in that sense. But the thing was, as Andrew pointed out there, early on there were examples of where it could be done right. And most of those come when they understand how to be a game, uh, as well as a storytelling device. And the worst kind tend to be the ones that treat it as a theme park. Right, you know, where you just go in one end, out the other, and it just throws a few things at you here and there, and yeah, it's, they're forgettable. Uh, but then there are obviously this whole other level of worse offenders that try and throw in gameplay mechanics for the sake of it, you know, because they feel like you have to do this, you have to do that. Mm. It's like it almost feels like they're pushing further and further against the idea of doing combat for the sake of it yeah it's like uh, there there are points where you some games like that you'll be you you might as well have some combat just some right yeah i mean it it's like i feel like these games arise from like the you know rejection of the idea that all games need to have combat in them you know what Mm. i mean like i feel like the Mm. rise of the walking simulator which sort of is parallel with this the rise of like first person combatless horror games yeah it's like the walking sim is like you know especially like if you look at early games like dear esther the stanley parable gone home all of those are teams that are in the case of like stanley parable and dear esther they're taking half-life 2 and modding it those games both begin as half-life 2 mods and they're saying okay what can we do with this game's mechanics and assets that is interesting that doesn't use combat and then gone home is like a team that worked on bioshock 2 on the minerva's den dlc going how can we make bioshock without combat and so like that's where the genre has a lot of its roots and i feel like now it's like okay this game would make more sense if it had combat but because the staple of the genre is that it doesn't have combat we can't add that in like i think when you get to the point where like in blair witch you are scaring monsters off with a flashlight you have sort of lost the plot you know because they're trying to (laughs) replicate combat through right. that and it's like this is uh, this isn't fun and I feel like if you just <laughs> added a gun it would start to be more fun than it is yeah I mean Alan Wake shows you can do that you, know, you can have a flashlight and a gun and still do the shadowy things and the wood things Blair Witch is a terrible offender because it 
just you know it bolts out the door too early with, with the whole showing of it when you consider you know, the mastery of the original film is just that it's like there's just nothing really shown it just gets gradually more unsettling in very subtle ways below which the game just doesn't feel like that at all it's very much like now you're going to walk for a bit now everything's going to get spooky and now you're going to have to be watching around your back every five seconds for a shape and just pointing the light and it's just it's just at that point it's the antithesis to what Blair which means to me personally yeah. and that was made it very disappointing because I was like well, I, you know because you know if we give an example of a developer that can do it sometimes it is Bloober they can do right. these things uh, lay, the original Layers of Fear for its commitment to never being anything but the game that is turn around something's changed mm-hmm. and doesn't de- doesn't deviate from that path at all to go have you been chased or do anything like that but it tells its story that way does a loop a little more story carries on and it works because it's simple and that's what it is and so that Bloober the Bloober did that and Observer you know where they've built up storytelling much better um I could be excited for them doing a game like Blair Witch, but Blair Witch was more like the Bloober that did, you know, Layers of Fear 2. You know, the, mm. you know, the game that was like, well, now we've got to add all the other things. It's like they hadn't learned that they had a good thing going and they could have right. done better. Yeah. In terms of Blair Witch, the example that you're using where the flashlight essentially becomes a weapon, at that point, it almost kind of feels like, well, why didn't you just develop a a version of combat that just feels more unique or more at home or something like that, where it kind of just feels like, like Andrew had said, they just felt like they had to include combat for some reason. So they're going to throw this mechanic in there. But then at the essence of it, it takes away from what Blair Witch is all Mm. about, kind of in a way where you're mostly helpless throughout the entire experience. Um, But I think also like Layers of Fear 1, and then going from that to the sequel, which is a game that I think captures the atmosphere to a certain extent, but then there's large sections of the game where they felt like they had to add more variables to gameplay other than combat but it almost feels like they felt well we have to have something more interactive here and you get those like segments where you're like dodging those beams of light that'll kill you or I think there's three or four of those chase sequences that by the uh, I mean the first time it's kind of shocking because it's so suddenly introduced but then after that again you fall into that thing where it's like well it's one hit, one kill. Yeah. So then if you if you take the wrong turn, all of a sudden, then you end up maybe having to do it three or four times. And it goes from losing all of that atmosphere and terror of being chased to like, okay, let me get through this part because this is getting in the way of me really experiencing the elements mm-hmm. that Bloober Team showed with the original Layers of Fear that are actually terrifying, can withstand the uh, duration of that, whether it be, I don't know, four or five hours of a run with that game. But I think for me, at least, my biggest issue with combatless horror a lot of the time especially with something like outlast which i might be in the minority there i don't particularly enjoy those games and i guess i'm sort of speaking for neil as well i know neil has a uh, has much fault with both of those but my thing always comes back to is that a lack of combat or even puzzle solving in that regard whether it be combat or puzzle solving i basically have two variables that I can turn to at all times, which is to hide or I can run. And there are definitely games within this genre that lack combat that have achieved tension and terror throughout. And I mean, I'm going to probably list uh, Frictional Games' catalog numerous times during the course of this episode as like the the pedestal to be placed upon for combatless horror. But 
In terms of something like Outlast, it just feels so restrictive in those variables that by the first two hours, I don't think I finished either one of those games, by the way, so that's a caveat. I think I played three hours of both, and then I was like, well, I'm pretty much over running and hiding under beds or hiding in closets at this point because there's no other uh, variables for me to really dabble in to try to overcome these obstacles. Yeah. Yeah, I think... um, So, I am like... Frictional games has been a big blind spot for me. I sort of got into this genre by Bluebird. I really loved... um, Observer, at least like yeah. in the original release, I love like the first half of Observer, and then I think the <laughs> second half sort of falls into a lot of what we're talking about, and they fixed <laughs> it for System Redux. Um, but that was sort of my entry point, and then I played a bunch of the smaller ones. But the games were so hit and miss for me that I never like prioritized going back and playing Frictionals games. Yeah, but I had been playing Amnesia: The Dark Descent this week leading up to this and I feel like that game completely gets it is so like dialed into how to make uh, you know horror work without combat yeah um, and I think a lot of it is that they build out like a like deep system around light you mm. know like mm. so yeah. that instead of you know scavenging for ammo you know where that would be what you're doing in a combat-centered horror game, like you know, one of the Resident Evils, that this is like you're find you're looking for tender boxes, you're looking for oil for your lamp, and like yeah, the the fear that you're feeling about okay, I can't be in this dark place for super long, or else you know it's going to affect my sanity meter, is comparable to how you would feel if like you know there's monsters that you need to find ammo to take care of. It sort of brings in the same feelings that you have while playing a, you know, a survival horror game yeah. um, like mm-hmm. Resident Evil, but without having to actually bring in combat. And I think a lot of them just don't have anything in the place of combat, right? Like no. like we said, like you're just running and hiding. They're not like building out, you know. And like Outlast has, at least Outlast 2, I haven't played any of the first one, but Outlast 2 has the... Um, batteries that you're constantly looking for to pop into your camcorder which I think is like the it is like the goofiest version of the um cause it's like oh we found this you know uh you know very traditionalist sex cult and <laughs> <Yeah>. batteries double <laughs> A batteries are all over yeah. the, the place well basically Duracell did an airdrop before you right, arrived exactly. just, there's batteries scattered just everywhere um, but yeah, I think, um, especially there also, like what frictional does so well is that they layer their worlds in texture, but also a lore, right? Especially in the dark descent. But I think it's something that they've built upon mm. in each subsequent release after that, in that they really do pay attention to both in terms of like the gameplay with more of a limited, uh, sense of like the mechanics again, cause while I said earlier, like some of the shortcomings of a lot of combatless horror games is that you have one or two options, those are the same types of options you really do have in their games. But again, the way it's presented, the way that it makes it very personable with especially the fear and that mechanic of how quickly, as soon as that match goes out, every single time, no matter how long you've been playing the game for, that or even uh, Amnesia Rebirth, right? It's that you immediately feel that initial fear of, okay, 
I only have a handful of seconds before the lack of light truly starts to take a toll. And I think that they're really good at like instilling that fear. Whereas in Outlast, if you run out of batteries, you're like, okay, it's just a pain in the ass now because I have to squint until I find the next set of batteries. It's more about... (laughs) It's more in that sense just about visibility, which in that case, like just pump up the <laughs> the gamma and whatnot, right? But I think with um, with uh, Frictional Games's catalog, and especially like post their original horror series or trilogy, was a series called Penumbra, which is the DNA of Dark Descent. Pretty yeah. much strives from that. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting that the first Penumbra game had combat in it and it was awful mm. and they, like it was very bad it was not only just limitations of the tech but it didn't feel like it was it felt like it was kind of just copy and pasted in this because it's like well yeah it's it's a horror game and there's enemies so of course there has to be combat mm. but if anything they dropped that for the next subsequent two games that came out and they haven't included combat sense in their games and it really shows that while they didn't deviate more attention and time to like fleshing out combat, they invested in the mechanics that and the variables that are so strong and profound in their games. And if anything, it's for the better. I can't imagine playing one of their games in the future and being like, oh, this could really use combat. You never feel like that. Um, And that's, again, through fleshing out the world, but also the attention to like puzzles that don't feel like they are just intrusive to anything they don't really they feel just like they belong in that world and that's an element of horror games that doesn't always necessarily hit right you have things like resident evil where it's like okay i understand the context of this world it's kind of very b-movie in certain regards and that it's like yeah i'm gonna collect a bunch of keys with different shapes and things on them and jewels and whatnot but when you put that in other game horror games that maybe present themselves as being a little more grounded it always feels out of place for me mm-hmm. because i'm like well this is kind of ridiculous. Like, why am I hunting for these uh, gems and jewels in this random house or whatever? Right. But that's one thing that I think, um, especially if you explore more frictional games as catalog, that uh, hopefully you'll find to appreciate just like Neil and I do. Yeah. yeah. I will um, point out as well that uh, Frictional have also made one of those mistakes in Soma originally with the uh, the whole, not chase sequence so much, but being hunted by the creatures in mm. that, uh, which was such a divisive point for so many that they, you know they went back and thought, well, how can we make that better? You know, like then how can we change it? And what they did with that was quite smart. But then what they learned from that going into Rebirth, I mean, you know, if you play Rebirth, it it shows that you know they didn't know what they were doing all along. You know, back in Dark Descent, you know, they were one of the, the progenitors of this sort of YouTube era and like scary games. Oh, we're going to react to this, but they had something underneath it. Mm. You know, they did. They didn't make that game for YouTube. It just happened to be one of those that organically got picked up into that thing. And then, as we said, so many games then copy that, not understanding why it got you know hooked people in the first place. But then Rebirth is just like it takes everything that's been understood. Uh, before understands the, the failings of the genre and then just takes it in a whole new level um, even down to the whole chase sequence ideas and the idea of being hunted and failure is just done in such a great way and a really fascinating way which just doesn't get talked about enough but it is remarkable how much they changed in, in, in that time and learned from it and then made a game that Essentially, you know, it's the same kind of thing they released in 2010, 
with, with the first amnesia, but is so much better than anything that came out like it since. You know, it's yeah. those ten years, and it is it staggered me. You know, and we did a whole episode on it for that very reason because one of the first games I really wanted to talk about on this podcast because it's just like it. I, you know, I often times just get through these games and either I just switch, if I'm not reviewing them especially it just switch off don't want to know after a while Outlast 2 was very much one of those where it repulsed me early on it was just like nah you, you are just trying way too hard to be something and it just doesn't work at all mm-hmm. and and I, you know, I didn't really like the first one as it was so that didn't help right. but yeah when you get a game like that like Rebirth it just even the stuff you liked before in the, the 10 years between those games it, it, you're still like yeah not really now they don't seem so good because it's like because uh, like, we haven't evolved this thing in the whole time and the yeah. most criminal thing about it i said it a couple of times now it's like that last September you know that game came out Spelunky 2 came out two games that pushed the original ideas of their games into a new level and they got ignored because new consoles were coming out and that was it so mm-hmm. no one gave a shit and it, it was mad because you know they they started some big things in, in the indie space and it, it's mad to think that their sequels were like eh, shut like right yeah man Spelunky got hurt by Hades coming out of early oh. access so close to it because yeah. I, I like both of those I like both of those games quite a bit but it was like you know Hades was just doing something that yeah. felt newer, you know? I felt mm. more forgiving, I think, was the other thing. I think it was Spelunky 2 just happened to be brutal. But it's darkly brutal and comic, you know, in a way that I just, I don't mind dying and don't mind the frustration because it just looks so absurd when you've got these little squadgy figures just being impaled and just sort of slowly going into the spikes like that. It's just like, never ceases to be funny after the fact you know but um anyway that's a that's a whole other episode i'm sure yeah that's a whole other discussion (laughs) i I will say one thing about the outlast games and not to you know keep uh, beating a dead horse here Mm -hmm. but the when the main sort of go-to is running away it's one of the elements that i hate the most about those types of games because Mm -hmm. When you're constantly like being funneled down corridors or and whatnot, and when you have time to explore and search for like a key card or whatever, those are such limiting sections that it never gives you a chance to really like explore environments in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I can't stand because that's the element of horror that I, I love most above all else is that you get to explore these really unique places that are somewhat familiar but there's something seriously flawed about them whether it be strewn with bodies or satanic imagery and stuff or just learning about the horrific history of events that have happened there or just the history in general i mean taking back to something like uh uh what remains of edith finch which is not a horror game primarily but it definitely has inklings of horror in it and they definitely approach it with those uh variables periodically throughout that game and whatnot it kind of has that much like gone home which i'm sure we'll talk about later has these inklings of horror and the setup for like a haunted house but you learn about it's more about it being sort of haunted with the memories of what happened there rather than an overt horror but it is the thing where when you're running for three-fourths of a game there's no emphasis that anywhere is important Mm, yeah that anywhere matters to be explored because it's not so much the history of the place that has and 
typically that when I find like the haunting history of an environment, it's that it's retelling something that's happened, whether it be a physical or emotional trauma. When it's something where you're just kind of, especially in Outlast, the first one, every single room is strewn with the same two or three decapitated corpses, mm. and then you run to the next room and it's the same exact thing. Yeah. It feels it feels artificially like a haunted house. And not to say that I don't like haunted house games or movies or whatnot, but it feels artificially so in the sense that it just feels forced. And I think that's how I would describe that horror aesthetic. And people are free to like what they like. But for me, I I would like to see a little more even-handedness in it. Whereas, kind of like Neil had said, there's a very reaction. It feels like game design that's based in reactionary uh, takes and things like that. Or it's kind of like, oh, let's... See if we can get people to scream on Twitch because there's a bunch of decapitated corpses here. And that's never the types of horror that I find can sustain itself for whether it be a four or five hour experience or even from in my case, I couldn't play more than two or three hours of those games. It just it runs very thin in terms of I wouldn't even say like it feels like an amusement park ride. It just feels like a ride that I want to get off Mm -hmm. very quickly as soon as I get onto. Yeah, I think I think um, in this sort of game like. If there's something, like, hunting you, that works best, not when it is like, oh, you're gonna, you know, be on a chase sequence for, like, an hour of this game or two hours of this game. It works best when it is like, okay, we've done the work, we've built, like, a place that's interesting to explore, but while you're exploring, there is the tension that something might come in at any moment. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is what's exciting, rather than, like, I reviewed a game for Bloody Disgusting a few years ago called Close to the Sun, which is set on yeah. this ocean liner called the Helios, which is like the plot is like Tesla, Nikola Tesla, not Elon Musk. Tesla um, <laughs> has um, it's an automated show, right? <laughs> um, he's um, like invited all these you know brilliant people to like live on the ship and like form like a scientist or artist's colony basically like exceptional people are gathering here and forming a colony which is like a very interesting idea there's like if you have all those people there then it's like all this um you know all this room for there to be you know interesting things that you see or find you know pickups that you can read about the people that are living there in like half of that game at least is just like a chase sequence where you're just you know are running through this environment it's like that you mm. you set up a very interesting setting and you had like you're making me run through all of it rather than being able to appreciate the architecture or the interpersonal relationships or anything like intellectually spooky. All it is, is like me reacting and pressing like the forward key on my computer, you know? Hmm. So I think like that's, that's something that a ton of these games fall into is the like observer, which we've talked about and which I like and what they fixed when they made the system redux is that that game starts out very grounded you're in this cyberpunk tenement building where you're exploring and meeting people and picking up side quests and finding like things to read which are giving you the history of it and then the second half of that game you are like just jacked into somebody's you know because it's a cyberpunk game so you're like jacked into somebody's like cybernetic implants and like going through like basically a dream space and there's no there's no sense of place to that it just is like you know whatever like random you know things they can sort of strew together there's no sense of internal logic to it Hmm. and so it it like after a while it just like I'm just sick of this I just you know like I was so into 
exploring this place and you've removed yeah. the sense of place. Mm. Yeah, I agree there. It was Observer's biggest weakness was when it just stopped being that very... I don't know, the, the first half felt personal, you know, despite mm. it being, you know, this sci-fi story. Mm-hmm. Is that just, you know, because they took, you know, the idea of Polish building, you know, I've been to Poland and seen buildings like these, you know, with the, and how run down there, and the idea of them just covering up the, the, the rotten decay of the buildings with their holographic images and, yeah, everything inside is still seedy. And for a bit, it gets the idea of doing what uh, most good horror walking sim style games do is, you know, if you're going to do it right, in any other way than be frictional you have to kind of divide everything out up have like a hub which is in observer is just walking around looking at all the doors and just getting a feel for the life of the the building um but then in each of these rooms you've got these little sub stories and yeah i think observer's problem was as you said they just don't feel connected to the rest of it uh, in any way which you know, I get it. Well, I get why, and I get why they can be a bit nonsense. You could argue that, you know, that's just different brains and different ideas that you're going through. So, of course, they wouldn't be the same. But it's, you know, it's hard to really trust that, you know, because Bloober is so up and down on, you know, whether they can do something that smart or not. You know, <laughs> they can, they can very much hit the wrong shot on every other attempt. Right. You know. But we mentioned Edith Finch, and you know, there's another game, you know, set in one building as a hub, and each room or area tells its own story, and you know, has its little horror moments and takes these little. But everything feels connected, no matter how different those sections are. And there's some surreal stuff in there, you know. There's the thing that takes on the creep show style vibe of like that, with the you know, you can do put the Halloween music and that, and that's really goofy, and that's a cool thing. But then there's the horrifyingly depressing stuff you know like you know the um more ways than one yeah <laughs> you know the, like the baby and like the part with oh, i forget his name you know he's cutting the heads of the fish and stuff like that lewis, lewis that's it yeah. yeah and just that and the whole just monotony of the work whilst it's going on with the daydreaming on the background and that is just you know exquisite you know mm-hmm. to have that kind of storytelling and because all these stories tie into this tragedy of this house and this family, it all makes it like a, a very personal horror. And that's where, that's where you do it right. In Sound yeah. Mind recently, it didn't do bad on that either. You know, where you are, you know, each, it took the observer idea of like each person's psyche being like a skate, you know, a, a landscape for the levels and, you know, the person in them and manifests as, you know, a particular kind of spirit and they're all different as well so while it does have some of the chase stuff and does do some of the usual tricks it's presented in a way that works you know and plus you know the main character is also dealing with his own issues and you know an entity trying to take him over and I thought you know while not perfect it still understood what it was doing you know it understood that you can divide that up have different ideas in the same game but still keep that continuity going. Yeah, I think that, that level from Edith Finch, the, the fish cannery sequence, might be the best level period of, like, the last generation of games. It is so good. Yeah. I mean, that that game has, like, several, I think. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, I think the Baby George one is, as well is just... 
heartbreaking in how just casually it handles something so awful. Yeah, it mm. makes it into this dreamlike, fantastical sequence, and it's just like fucking hell, like that. And then yeah. you get the canary one as well, and it's just yeah. Needless to say, you know, one of the, my favorite games of all time because it, it just constantly does stuff like that. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's just, it's uh, yeah, it. You know, I feel like the longer you have been playing games and especially like playing them seriously the way that mm. we all have to do to cover them, it's like it is sort of rare that you come across something that feels entirely new and the yeah. the way that that mm. handles it where it's like forcing you to, you know, learn how to do something with your hands so that you can focus your attention completely on something else and having <laughs> you play out both of those at the same time. It is such a perfect representation of like what it's like to daydream while you're doing a mindless task. Oh, yeah. so I just, I've, I've never seen anything like it. It just is like one of those breakthrough moments where you're like, you know, I think like games are so hype focused that we think of like the big breakthroughs as being, okay, well you know, like ray tracing or like this can handle crowds or this can make you know the world significantly bigger but like <laughs> when there is that sort of like breakthrough just with like okay somebody's doing something mechanically here that I've never seen before and it's something that like is has been possible for as long as games have you know had two sticks on the controller basically yeah and nobody has done anything like this until now it's just is so brilliant and I think like that is like a daydream and we've been talking sort of about like you know sort of the like tendency for these games to like get into dream sequences or you know nightmare sequences where it just is like there is no logic to it Mm -hmm. and that is like a instance of a game using like the way that it actually works in the real world representing that in games it just is it's it's brilliant brilliant game i don't know if it's horror it's sort of like on the edge it's like tim burtony you know yeah. where it's like I mean, it's it, like creepy and like you know concerned with like death and the macabre but you know i think everybody should play it yeah and i think for the creature segment alone it deserves to, to have a bit of a horror label on it yeah. but you know that's maybe the best sequence in it but it, it one of those things that made me smile because it's just handled like that so much that it was like yeah brilliant yeah love this already and then it just went and hit you with one two three four th- other things like yeah i think the rest of the game is like existential dread yeah like the, the <laughs> horror of like knowing you will die and then that that goes straight out into like campy horror yeah an enjoyable reminder that uh that we that we're all gonna die one day but <laughs> i think that uh I really am a fan of games such as that, but also, of course, something like Gone Home that either dabbles in horror or presents itself as a horror game. Like Gone Home very much, the setup for it for the first hour or two is this is a haunted house game. But of course, we learn that it evolves into something else that is less horrifying, but it still dabbles in a lot of the sort of emotions that can be derived from horror, right? Like you had said, Andrew, a lot of the like macabre and whatnot and telling one of the most personable and heartfelt stories um, that I've experienced in games up until that point, um, and even still in some regards, it's one of those that some might view that as being, I guess, 
maybe some parts of horror fans them think like, oh, well, it's <laughs> it's deceptive or whatnot because it's not really a horror game. Mm-hmm. But if anything, I think that's a beautiful example of just the horror medium and genre as a whole, right? That you can introduce topics and whatnot that you might not normally be exposed to within something that's very familiar and yet it's still earned, right? That's why I never like understood why it was viewed as being deceptive because it crafts that atmosphere to the T. If they wanted to make the whole game actually be a horror game, mm-hmm. they could have done that. Yeah. And I think that they earned that in a lot of ways. Um, even on multiple replays, I think that's a sense of atmosphere that is, it's just putting you in a, and you know, it's one of those uh, go-to things where it's like, oh, it's like you're really there. Or it's very organically created, but it actually feels like a lived in space, even though you don't interact with other characters. And that's, a quality of I would describe it as being a haunted house in a lot of ways because the the echoes of the spirits of people that were there at one point they might as you might as well be interacting with NPCs because you feel like you know these people just from being in that space and getting to quite literally dig through their dirty laundry at times to uh, learn all about them and whatnot but I wanted to uh, introduce one of our first uh, user thoughts somebody re- a listener thoughts somebody reached out on Twitter and I think that this is a great segue to uh, my next topic and it's from uh, Harrison Abbott our buddy over at Newsweek that covers games um, and he said he doesn't mind combatless horror he actually enjoyed Atlas 2 Neil but that's a conversation for another uh, time he's a, he's a good uh, chap he finds- <laughs> Harrison finds that uh, it can be effective um, he prefers games that give him agency even if that agency is hide and seek mechanics um, he over that of something like uh, PT styled knockoffs that have the player kind of just like wandering in circles uh, though he feels that helpless horror does feel dated now that games such as Alien Isolation and Resident Evil 7 have evolved on it. And I think that this is a great jumping off point for my next point, which is how does combat elevate horror games? We've talked about how a lack of combat can hurt certain horror games, but how does combat itself really elevate it for you, Andrew? Uh, I think like these sorts of games that want to make you feel vulnerable by taking away your weapons have just highlighted for me how much more effective games that have weapons are at doing that. Mm. Because, like, I feel so much more vulnerable in Resident Evil 7 than I do in, like, 90% of uh, this sort of horror game because the ammo is scarce. Like, ammo scarcity is a more effective way to, like, accomplish the goal of making you feel vulnerable than... um, not having a weapon at all. Because if I don't have a weapon at all, I know I can't do anything. You know? If I have ammo scarcity, if I have, like, two bullets in my clip, I'm, like, so afraid that I'm gonna, like, am I gonna find more ammo for this gun? Could I possibly find, you know, like, the shotgun or find some ammo for my for my shotgun that'll help me get through this uh, part? Because if I don't have any ammo, it's gonna be extremely difficult to get through this part. Like, all of those thoughts, that mechanic very effectively like brings through like anxiety in a way that I don't think these games often can unless they're sort of like like we talked about Amnesia The Dark Descent like is a game that has its own deep set of mechanics has its own scarcity it isn't weapons but it does effectively recreate that feeling it just is doing something else I think when games just are having you run from enemies and you don't have anything that you are, like, anxious about or concerned about that you are keeping tabs on in your mind, which, like, you know, tender boxes or pistol ammo can both fulfill that same, you know, role. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That's when they get less interesting to me is when they don't have something like that. Yeah, because they basically act as temporary you know, comforts. You know, to, to play, and know, you have the comfort of knowing that you've got them, but the fear of knowing that you're not going to have enough of them. You know, and that's the balance. That's perfect. That's why it's always worked so well, is that you know, a good horror game, you know, you know, there are games that misunderstand it and think you have to have all the bullets available in the world or mm-hmm. too much power. But, yeah, I mean, think of Alien Isolation, you know, which, again, is another game that evolves on that idea. You know, it's like you have some tools, but you are way out of your league in terms of the enemy that you're mm-hmm. facing. And, you know, there's a game that takes several of the tropes of that little subgenre and suddenly goes, no, we can make this scary. We can make it feel fresh by giving you that little bit of power, but it's never enough. It's like you've got some means to defend yourself. You've got your wits about you. But at the end of the day, this creature is smart enough that it's going to outsmart you at some point and you're going to get too cocky. And this is the other thing that, you know, weapons or light sources or whatever would bring is confidence you know and maybe overconfidence where you start thinking that you're okay maybe you stockpile a few things and you're thinking i've got plenty here this is good mm-hmm. and then a section hits you where you blindly panic you fire off too many rounds and before you know it then another section comes where you would have needed those bullets and it just makes you appreciate that you need every round you know in games like that it's why resident evil the early resident evil games were so great to me is that every bullet but he did feel like it counted you know yeah you just you learned that you you know very quickly you learned that shooting every zombie C just wasn't feasible you had to find a way around them because you knew there was going to be something worse down the line that you are going to need those bullets for because you can't outrun it you won't escape it yeah I think these games are um game games like Resident Evil Village or I think back to um, Vampire the Masquerade uh, Bloodlines, games that are not combatless horror games, but include uh, combatless sections. Mm. So, like, mm. you guys in the Layers of Fear 2 episode talked about House Beneviento and how, like, that is a really, really effective version of what games like Layers of Fear 2 are trying to do, where it is like, that. that is by far the scariest part of that game. And it's, you know, one of the scariest things I've seen in a game in a while. And it is doing that thing where there's a monster after you. You can't fight back. But it's only doing it for ten minutes. That's the thing. is like And, like, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines has the Ocean View Motel or hotel level where you're, you know, going on this quest. And when you get there, you don't have your weapons. And you're running away from, you know, this monster and this, you know, haunted hotel. That stuff works because it is not having to sustain a whole game on that. It's like, like both of those levels don't have like super deep mechanics. Like Resident Evil is stripping out what it does most of the rest of the time, and so is Vampire: The Masquerade Bloodlines. But they're only doing it for a short amount of time, and so it can sustain itself for that long. And I think that's a real struggle that games like Outlast have if they're gonna make if they're gonna build a game that doesn't have deep mechanics and just wants to keep you scared it's a lot harder to sustain that for four or five hours than it is for 10 to 15 minutes yeah you have to trust in yourself in games like that uh, to keep the running time what it should be and just pack the punches where you need them Uh, i think again another problem with those was games increasingly 
reacting to the idea that players wanted more uh, and it had to be more. I mean, Gone Home, you know, the, the shit it got mostly was because we were at a very bad place overall in the games, you know, games industry in terms mm-hmm. of like mainstream games. And I think because it, you know indie games rose up and t- kind of took that spot and you had that subset of gaming fans, if you will, that would be very defensive about that and want the blockbuster experiences and you see them today, you know, like, and let's be honest, they won out it overall because you know, they yeah. got what they wanted. They got their safe, happy, lovely things that are big and sparkly. Mm-hmm. And occasionally they're great and they're <laughs> masterful and there's something to really respect in them. But most of the time it's just like, you basically what you're saying is you want the game you remember when you were five and, and you want it to be a better, slightly better looking version of that. Yeah. So when they're I challenged think- by a game like Gone Home, the reaction is very different. It's like, oh yeah, it's a bait and switch. Oh, it's all it does is let you walk around. It doesn't give you, yeah. Right. Yeah. Gone Home is at a really toxic intersection because it's like it's a game that doesn't have shooting, mm. and so gamers saw that and were mad about that. And then it was like, and it has girls in it, <laughs> and they're gay. <laughs> like it. <laughs> right. It was really like. A lot of reasons for them to, you know, be shitty and toxic about it. But yes. Gun Home, I, one of my favorites. I, I, and I played that game after I had played Edith Finch. I came back to it later. Mm. And even after playing Edith Finch, which is like ostensibly building on Gun Home's foundation and yeah. adding in, you know, yeah. deeper mechanics, Gun Home still holds up. I think, like, like, they really had something special with that house and the way that they structured it and exploring it like one of my favorite game settings of all time just immensely satisfying to explore yeah and like to to me the the terror in that game is it still is scary but you if you are bought into the story about it are worried about what happened to your sister like Mm. the it's saving that final you you feel like oh is this saving a final gut punch for me when i go up in the attic and find out that she killed herself and so when it when it like you you are if like if you're bought in you're thinking about that for like the last hour or so of that game wondering what's going to happen when when you get up there and to me that's just as effective as like um you know more typical horror stuff it really rings a lot of like you know dramatic tension from a real human worry rather than you know ghouls yeah, it's um, it's like uh, you know the whole game is based on irrational fear. You know the character themselves, and you know it it manifests in the story you're reading and reading about. You don't have that extra knowledge, sure, but it's there. You know, and that's very much a human thing, as you say. It works well because of that, and that combined with the house and the stories it tells makes it you know this really unusual story in terms of games because it's the bait the bait and switch of it is on purpose you know it's not like it's just like for the sake of it that you know oh oh, we fooled you it's like Mm -hmm. no no no. it it still counts it still means something Mm -hmm. but there was tension and worry and angst about all this because it's there in the character that's what the character is feeling and that's how it comes Mm -hmm. out and manifests you know how many horror movies have done such a thing? You know where it's what the characters thinking, what what they're experiencing that makes it seem like a terrible, horrifying situation when it's really not, you know, or maybe it mm-hmm, is. Right. And, yeah, so it 
because games just don't do that that's you know and as i said there are many people that expect games to be a certain thing when games do that they just don't get it and we had these discussions about them about why they aren't a game because they don't do this this and this and it's like right. it's like you don't have to have a crafting system to be a game you don't have to, have right. to be a game but you know people right. still will think that i mean it, it's not as bad these days because like i said those people have their big shiny toys and they don't care so much about the rest of it now but and it's not so bad mm. but yeah it's still when a game does well and it's you know independent to some degree or you know a small company you, you always get the that audience and they pipe up to sort of defend their corner if you will <laughs> I think that combat works best in horror when it's juggling empowerment right I think that if you ever end up in a place where okay I've got the, the shotgun the machine gun the rocket launcher the grenade launcher I feel invincible now you might as well just be playing an action game and there's plenty of great horror action games out there you know a couple of them being in uh, the Resident Evil series and whatnot that work and they're able to be effective for that type of experience but the best horror games that have combat in them that retain their horror element and being tried and true to that throughout the entire run of it I think are the ones that give you moments of empowerment but even if you have a gun you're never allowed to feel invulnerable and I think obviously Alien Isolation is one of the best examples of that in that by the end of the game, you're able to make pipe bombs, Molotovs, you've got flamethrower and all these, but your empowerment is in these like 30 to 60 second sprints where you're able to, and there are a couple of enemies that you can flat out kill, but is it ever really worth it? Yeah. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially when it comes to the Xenomorph, right? It never ends that pursuit. That pursuit is only ever momentarily mm-hmm. giving you somewhat of a reprieve, again, to catch just long enough to catch yeah. your breath and almost forget about it before you hear rustling in the ducks or you see drool coming from a nearby air vent. But what I love so much about that is that, again, the flamethrower, it scares it away, but only sometimes does it actually run all the way uh, far away and like goes into a duct. Sometimes it runs around the corner and then it comes right back a few minutes later and it's right there. And you're never allowed to feel like you're ever really gaining much traction in terms of like that war that you're waging with either one Xenomorph or two or three or however many that you're actually facing. And that's something that Resident Evil 7, like I've been dying to go back to revisit that because I remember those opening hours or the first two hours or so against like Jack, who's like the patriarch of that household Mm -hmm. and how, yeah, I've got a gun and I've got a shotgun and I can shoot him in the face and he'll go down. The first time he stands back up though and regenerates is one of the scariest moments I've had in games because it kind of fundamentally made me rewrite the way that I was approaching that game, but also just realizing that you can give player a gun and ammo and I could have three or four mags, but in certain situations, that's only good enough for 60 to 90 seconds before, and eventually, of course, you're going to have the proper boss fights later down the road, but that's one of those elements that it really did kind of reinvent the terror of Resident Evil for me in a way that I hadn't felt in a while. Not to say that I hadn't been enjoying them throughout the series up from whenever the last time I felt that was, but um, I think that's something that kind of like built from the DNA of the original Resident Evil games where you had, whether Mr. X or the Nemesis, right, these these kind of monumental figures that were stalking you and you never really were safe. You kind of were buying your safety, but it was always in these small incremental amounts of time that were inevitably going to run out and kind of the anticipation of when that would run out was always what kept me like truly terrified and stopped those games from maybe or it stopped them it allowed them to evolve past being just 
the haunted house full of ghouls, which I saw the first one as. Not that I'm describing that as like a detriment to it. That was very much that experience, and I loved that experience. But I think it just it opened my eyes to the different types of horror that were out there, and that the player, no matter how well armed they may be, is never allowed to, should never rather be truly allowed to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, like we talked about last week with Condemned Criminal Origins. Granted, there's a lot, it's not nearly to the degree that something like Resident Evil or the Xeno encounters are, but I think that the empowerment comes by way of the firearms, and I, I wrote about it for Bloody Disgusting, where you never, uh, picking up a gun is never a guarantee that it's going to A, have ammo in it, but also you have one or two shots at the most sometimes, and sometimes you're going to come across enemies that can eat two slugs, and then you're standing there basically with like, your member in your hand because now you've just got this empty gun and he's going to crack you in the face of the two by four. So I think that the way in which devs are really honing in on empowerment, but never letting the empowerment dictate the remainder of the experience, I think is a key to combat in horror games, not just the ability to put a gun in their hand or put a pipe in their hand. Yeah. Right. I mean, it turns, you know, the best, again, the best, Horror games turn offensive weapons into defensive weapons. Things that will keep the horrors away just for long enough uh, that you can, you know, have a breather. You know, whether that be just a light source, whether that be just like being able to board up a door or whatever, you know, it, or if it's a gun, you never feel safe. I mean, you, come on, you think of like most horror experiences where you get, uh, you know, the well equipped, well, I mean, Christ. Aliens as a film, there is about taking the concept of the first film and saying, "Ah, yeah, but this time we've got all these badasses with guns, you know, and they're they're battle hardened, and they're not a bunch of you know space truckers," and Mm. and yet, you know, the film then posits back, "Well, ah, well, you think that's enough, do you?" It's like, "Well, guess what? Mm -hmm. Now there's a thousand of these fuckers, and they're smarter than you, (laughs) and that's it. That's it." and it, you know, this confidence that they're better than their enemy. That they, they, they love violence, so they, and they want to kill us. So these enemies must be, you know, dumb and not have any smarts to them. And underestimating the enemy is you know, such a big part of horror. Mm. And having a weapon makes you feel like you're in the driving seat. Like ah, now I got you. And like Condemned is a very good example of that. Like you said, where you get that and early on in the game it shows you this example of like you could just pretty much one shot the guy in the head and that's it done and it's mm. like wow this feels powerful you know, like that and then as the game goes on it there's no distinction as to what enemy should take how many shots sometimes you know the enemies look the same most of the time you know that certain types that like each other but later some of them will take more shots than others and then so you're like oh well yeah that guy took like one shot so you'll shoot this one and like oh he's not dead i'll take another oh he didn't die third one oh he hasn't died and he's still coming at me and now there's another guy from the side coming at me and suddenly the panic sets in it's like i love that that's a very small subversion of what you're expecting you know and that's perfect for horror you know that's that's exactly Mm -hmm. what you want you you want to be surprised and challenged by it something as simple as thinking you have the power like any isolation again you know gives you those weapons gives you more and more tools to down enemies and consequences constantly it's either you're just 
pushing the alien away for a while, or you know, gunfire is going to draw the alien to you when you're facing other foes. I'm always a fan of games that kind of spit in the face of the economy of bullets, which becomes very much a part of yeah. uh, survival horror games, especially, right? Because you start doing the math in your head, especially in something like Resident Evil, especially if you're playing a harder difficulty where ammo is even more scarce, and you're like, well, I've got five bullets in this gun, I know how many bullets it takes and then how many knife uh, attacks I can kind of like pair with that so one bullet and then three knife attacks and I'll down that guy but even if maybe it it breaks whatever grounded nature a horror game I present where you're not able to guess how many bullets it takes to put down an enemy I'm still in favor of that because it gives me those holy shit moments that you know the older I get the more horror games I'm playing and things like that and as long as I've been playing them at this point I'm kind of over the idea that everything maybe always has to be realistic or grounded and whatnot. I'm more looking for some of those moments where I shoot a guy in the face and he kind of stumbles, but then he comes right back at me again. And, you know, again, it might be uh, contrived to a certain extent, but you still get that moment that catches you off guard. And that's one of those things that, at least for me, I don't play as many games as I used to, but I'm looking for more memorable moments like that. And if you sprinkle that throughout a game that like Condemned is like six hours or something like that. It's not terribly long. That fills me with a certain amount of dread that I don't necessarily feel all the time with a lot of maybe modern horror games or just the approach. Sometimes, I think sometimes something is lost in the strive to be grounded or to be hyper-realistic in that you start to be able to predict how things should operate because like in the real world to a certain extent, you can sort of predict how certain things like consequence and action consequence and things like that. So sometimes when you get thrown that curveball, that in and of itself is a well-earned horror, uh, horror moment for me that um, I always, I'm always in favor of at least. Yeah. Um, Resident Evil 2 remake is great about that because the, the way that the uh, zombies move is so unpredictable that like like okay i think i have this shot lined up but then he like his head like jerks to the to the left so i miss like that that kind of stuff is like you it makes it so that you have to be extremely careful with every like shot that you let off at a at a you know a zombie that's bearing down on you cuz if you're running low you need to make sure you're close enough that you will actually hit it even if it moves a little you know and then there's also the question in those games that there, i don't think there's any like concrete amount of shots that they can take every time so it's like how many times is it gonna how many bullets is it gonna take to take this guy down this is it you'll get that wonderful thing of occasionally just hitting them in the head and it just you know shower of blood and skull but then another time you're like i've hit this fucker four times in the head and he's not uh-huh. there it's like <laughs> <laughs> that and you know, and again that gap gets closed and it panics you and you start missing shots and it's again just brilliant that that, that those little moments are perfect they don't make sense in the moment because you're like well why would why does this one take more shots than that one it's like just yeah it does that's it that's it you you want that little bit of you know going against expectations you you don't want it to be technically truly grounded because you know you're already in this absurd situation so why not why not play around with what (laughs) is and isn't possible without it being like overly over the top because in the moment you don't give a shit you're like oh right, yeah right. this is great no I, this is horrible <laughs> at the same time you know so you can't get out of that you're respecting the game for pushing your buttons and trying to take you into new places which is what's great about the fact that village does take that sort of sideways jump uh, with the house being the is that 
know, it does that. It's like, eh, no big deal. We'll, we'll do a bit with no guns. You know, we'll do it and make it make sense and make it a standout section. And which again, one of those weird things where you know, the uh, cult of the meme has sort of pushed it aside a bit now because where people are still going on about Dimitrescu and all that stuff. And it's like, well, it's, it's the weakest part of the game. That's why it really isn't important. You know, it's mm-hmm. not, it's it's fodder. It's the beginning. It's the start. The game, you know, it gets better and maybe a little worse as it goes on. But you know, I think it's very much an introductory section. Whereas you get to that place, and it's like suddenly Resident Evil is a whole other thing. You know, not yeah. like not like five and six where it's like here's a whole other thing you didn't ask for it's a right. whole you know, <laughs> and you don't want even after you tried it necessarily here's a thing that is like wow you know it's horror still this is still Resident Evil you're still you know in a place and it's full of fucking evil but it's mm-hmm. now a new kind <laughs> and it feels like the last two Resi games have been very brazen about stealing a lot of what these games, these indie games for the last 10 years have done, uh, and even what PT did, you know, you know the, that section is so PT it hurts at times, but you know, at least it's part of a full game, so it doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> so, right. yeah. And it isn't what the game is. Yeah. As we said, two problems that game, other games have really struggled with, but it it's yeah. just shows that they, at least with a good budget and a good understanding, you can make those ideas work for yourself and make it your own thing. It's good, you know, that the memification has left House Benevenento alone because it's like people, I think, will go in, like in the future if they play that game, will go in thinking, oh, I'm in for like eight hours of Lady Dimitrescu. <laughs> and then you get this like horrifying section like a few hours in. Like I think, I think there'll be a real surprise there for anybody that comes to it after, you know, after this year. Well, that's something that that was my experience, right? I went in very much thinking that it was going to be, oh, and, you know, it was largely due to the marketing, right? It was very heavily implied, like, oh, this is going to be a major section of the game. And then I found that to be what actually gave me more enjoyment of Village than the idea of what I thought that experience was going to be like, right? I thought it was going to be more classical, more restricted in terms of, like, this is the type of experience it would be. And then to see that it was very much, like, dabbling in various genres and influences of horror and getting different slices and no one part i mean it's all connected but it doesn't necessarily flow the same way that something like re7 did right you've got the house there's weirder parts of the house there's weirder people but it all feels very connected whereas in village i really appreciated the fact that it was dabbling in so many different what kind of like pools of horror if you will that gave me a variety of experiences which i think aided the more action-oriented nature of Village compared to that of something like RE7, even though RE7 definitely was more action-oriented than, uh, or reel that back a little bit, because thinking about 5 and 6 now, those were very, very action-heavy. But in terms of, like, finding a balance between classical Resident Evil and, of course, the action-oriented side of things, and then the first-person perspective and whatnot. But um, I want to mention another listener comment so I can kick off the uh, next talking point that I have, which is uh, Steve Bolin reached out and said, well, I think combatless horror currently seems passe. Most combat and first-person horror games condemned in Resident Evil 7 didn't necessarily click with him, and he felt that they were, he would go so far as to say that they were clunky. Uh, He thought that Alien Isolation nailed it in the sense that you are well-armed, but the end, by the end, but never overpowered. Mm. 
I definitely agree with the sentiment that he has there in that just because you have combat in a horror game doesn't necessarily always mean it's going to work. And, you know, I mentioned the combat in Penumbra didn't work for me, but that was more from a technical standpoint side of things. Like, it was a very restrictive and it didn't necessarily feel as fleshed out as the rest of the game. But I guess for you guys, are there examples of horror games where combat has actually been a detriment rather than a positive? How about for you, Andrew? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I love Prey, uh, but that game's combat is pretty bad. Like, I, I was amazed by what Arcane did with Deathloop because... It feels so... It, it just feels like a good first-person shooter. Mm. And, like, I think, like, that was one of my biggest... I mean, I played Prey on a base PS4, so my biggest issue was that it took, like, two <laughs> minutes to load anything. To load? Yeah. yeah. As somebody that just played it on Xbox Series S and you've got, like, 15 second, if that, loading times, it was, like, a completely different Not game. Not to mention how responsive it is as well. It's just crazy. Right. I'd like to... Yeah, I'd like to replay it on my... PS5 now that I have one to see if that, you know, substantially changes it, which I, uh, like, that's a game where it's like I want to backtrack because it's such an interesting interconnected space, and at the same time I don't because it's going to take, you know, a few Lord of the Rings extended editions for me to get from one place <laughs> to the other. I will say, in terms of the pacing and the loading times, this is a, a little bit of a, a tangent on my part, but um, that was the thing, because I played it two or three times on my PS4 back in the day, and the last five hours, uh, maybe not five hours, maybe three hours of that game are such a chore because you have to do so much backtracking and it becomes very tedious because you're like, cool, I'm going to run five paces and then have to wait two minutes to go through another door right. and then wait another two minutes. It's very stop and stutter for those last three hours. Whereas this time, I mean, we recorded on it uh, the, two episodes ago. It was like a completely new experience because it did not feel as laborious still. I still had some qualms with the ending of the game, but I think overall that stop and stutterness wasn't there and it gave me a new appreciation, which, you know, is part of the reason I love doing this podcast with Neil so much is that it gives me an opportunity to revisit games and now getting some distance and getting to see how it runs on more modern consoles and what kind of uh, patch work, patches and things like that uh, it could have. It, it gave me a new appreciation for that game and it serves as like my new benchmark, I think, for playing games at launch because as we all know sometimes games are not released in their best state initially and i think it's always important when i'm reviewing something to of course inform right out the gate of how in its current state this is but to always have in the back of my mind is this going to be the case in in a month in three months in six months and nine months and just i at least have moved forwards from this kind of just thinking like make sure to have that at least in the back of my mind while still obviously informing on it in the current state for the consumer. Right. Yeah, that's definitely a struggle when you're reviewing something, because I mm. I reviewed Ori and the Will of the West when that came out, and it was extremely, extremely buggy in, like, the mm. pre-release phase, and then they put through a patch, like... I'd written my review, and then they put through a patch, and I went back and changed a bunch of it, because the patch took care of <laughs> just about everything. And it's like, you don't want to write a review that is only useful to, like people that were playing it for those two days before it was actually out, you know? Which is easy to do, because that's your experience. Yeah. You want to, like, be true to your experience of the game, but it's like, that's not what most people are going to experience, and you want it to actually be true to, you know, what the game will look like at launch. Yeah, Prey, Prey yeah. was one of those, actually, for me, where, you know, I loved the game so much, even in its launch date, 
But you know, PS4 at the time, you know, not only did it have the load issues, but it had you know the, the control drift issues and things like that. You know, and that for me is a fucking killer. You know, if a, a game's controls aren't working, then you really just hampered yourself. Like I said, it, right. was, it was revelatory playing it again through backwards compatibility on PS5. Just you know, post patches, post all that to actually have this perfect version of it almost for a while then then I played it on Xbox and it was Series X and it was like wow now it's even better and mm-hmm. now I, you know, I can put that game up there with their best work you know, I, I agree that Deathloop just perfects that you know and really does mm-hmm. do all that so much better but yeah it, it was such a disappointment for me that that it came out in that state especially because of the game it was and you know, I think we discussed when we were talking about Prey that um you know, they were saying in that documentary by no clip, you know, how devastating it was to have bad reviews about things, about problems that don't really matter in the long run, you know, and it's like, right. you, you can't help but agree, but at the same time, like, yeah, but they're there, and it's like, what do you do? And yeah, it's always a tricky thing with reviews, as you say, you, you don't want to be harsh on something you know can be fixed, and right. I, I generally like to put that caveat in there that, yeah, it could be fixed. It's if you get the idea that it will be, I, I just so like a little side story here. I remember a game called Hashtag Kill All Zombies. It was like a uh, isometric zombie killing game. And I gave it six point five out of ten, I think, for back in the day on PlayStation Universe. And I was like, you know, I was very praising of it and saying, oh, no, it's good like that, but it just feels very you know, light on content. Doesn't feel like there's much to it. And you know, I've given low scores much much lower scores to many many games and that was the most vitriol I ever got from anyone you know who'd made a game because they were insistent like no the game's going to be better we're going to do all this stuff and we're going to make it better. and so I was like that's cool if you if you do that tell me and I'll, I will come back to this game and uh, have a look at it again never did mm-hmm. yeah. never came back <laughs> and it was just like yeah. stuff like that just annoys me and yet on the other end of the scale I had you know, it, just to sort of butt in and mention like my experience of a, like a game of bad combat, whatever, uh, in horror was like Escape Dead Island, which was like a spin-off, a cel-shaded spin-off of Dead Island. Uh, and oh. it was fucking awful in so many ways. They didn't care. Um, you know, much like a few games like that no, didn't care. It was really like, it was almost like they knew what they were putting out. But mm-hmm. there it was just like, I mean... The best thing about Dead Island as a series, as it was, as brief a series as it was, mm-hmm. is that it felt quite intimate, you know, and up front, you know, in your face as combat goes. And this was just like, it's like, it didn't know what it wanted to be. It was just such a wishy-washy, oh, we need to make another Dead Island game that isn't like the other Dead Island games while we make Dead Island 2 yeah and it just <laughs> just felt like that it really did it, it annoyed me no end because I was thinking I had so much invested in that as a series and I thought well yeah, it could really be good I like the idea of an open world zombie game where you're having to sort of grab whatever you can and I think you know we were talking about it with Condemned you know the idea of just grabbing something from the scenery or around you and just using it to beat the enemy in front of you would be great but it was never quite like that and it was 
in a terrible state and it never worked. And then yet those games were just instantly surpassed in disappointment by Escape Dead Island, you know, a game I didn't have any hype for or excitement for. A wet fart, you know, as games go. That's all it was. It just did not do anything interesting and combat was a chore. Yeah, I'm sure I could name so many other horror games, but I, at this moment, I forget them, but that's always one that sticks with me you know, in terms of like, I get that it's supposed to be some sort of inoffensive cash grab while they're getting ready to make the game they never made, but mm. it was still just, yeah, now, you know, the more I think about it and everything that happened, you know, I know that Techland went off and did their own thing anyway, but it just feels like an insult because <laughs> they, they never made the sequel that they were supposed to make and you know, Dying Light happened and that worked out well for Techland and you know, they're making a sequel to that and just, yeah it's just daft Dead Island died you know such a horrible death <laughs> just an, an embarrassing death so early and yet that's never mentioned as part of the cause you know, it's like it's always about oh well they did you know all the failures of Dead Island Two that never happened and Riptide and all that and it's nah come on it, it, it's stuff like Escape Dead Island which was just pointless and, and unnecessary. If you're gonna make a game called Escape Dead Island, it should at least star Snake Plissken. <sighs> yeah, yeah, instead <laughs> it stars a really really bad approximation of the lead character of Planet Terror. Which oh, is. interesting. Is that the one with the the gun on her leg? No, it's um, Freddy Rodriguez's character. Is, I think okay. I got that right. Yeah, I can't remember what characters. <laughs> I never saw Planetary. All I remember is the oh, yeah. the woman with the machine gun. Uh, Freddy Rodriguez is uh, uh, you know he's the guy that's in Hostel as well. Like, he's the lead mm. lead good guy, if you will. Mm. To be fair, machine gun legged women uh, are kind of hard to forget. Fault <laughs> yeah. <so> <laughs> you for that. Um, but I think in terms of just like. The combat doesn't necessarily always work in horror. I think it's more important that if you're going to include combat in a horror game, that it it works within the type of experience you're making, mm-hmm. right? Something like Fear doesn't work if you don't approach that as an action game first and foremost, because otherwise it's going to feel like a shitty FPS that has this J-horror aesthetic to it. And that's very clearly a game that is true to both uh, halves of its influence, that being first-person shooter and horror, But at the same time, it is very rooted in being a first-person shooter tried and true because that's a 10-plus-hour experience. It's not going to be one people are going to want to stick with if it controls like some type of budget title FPS. Uh, Meanwhile, I do agree with um, that listener that like Resident Evil 7 felt stiff in terms of the way it handled for me. At the same time, though, I don't necessarily fault it as much because it was trying to evoke a lot of that kind of like classic Spencer Mansion Resident Evil original feel to it and yeah of course it could have handled a little better in my opinion but I didn't fault it for that because I think it was so heavily influenced by these two different things and of course this is the first Resident Evil that was in first person and with Village I think Village takes an approach where it feels like they constructed that game more with the controls in mind and of course not to say that there was a detriment in the regards to the horror aesthetic of it but it felt like more attention or more familiarity was tied to the way that game handles. So that way you do get these comparisons, people saying, well, it feels like more of a Resident Evil 4 influence because there's such a heavier skew towards the action side of things. But I didn't find that to be a detriment because it felt 
like the controls were more refined. It felt more like it controlled like that while still having a lot of the ethos of that classic Resident Evil feel, um, which I think is key if you're going to continue to present it as first-person shooter or first-person perspective horror with guns and whatnot. It definitely needs to feel like they're moving in a direction where it feels more familiar in term their familiarity is uh, evident in the way that it handles in that regard. Uh, it really can't be this thing where it's like, well, we're going to keep sticking with this first person perspective, but it's going to handle like the last two or three games. There needs to be that sort of progression because we already know that they can make that horror aesthetic and they can tap into now it's like werewolves and whatnot. We know that they're able to do that, but I think it shows promising growth for somebody that, Hadn't played Resident Evil a lot in between like five and some of the subsequent titles that came out. It was very refreshing to see them go in another direction that was very radical in a lot of ways. Again, bringing it back to like Resident Evil 4, making that jump was very radical for that time period. But seeing how they refined it or maybe in some instances uh, stutter stepped with Mm. that new perspective it's just refreshing to see them go from seven to village and there's that progression the way it handles and giving that new perspective the attention and respect that it deserves it doesn't just feel like well we're kind of getting tired with this third person perspective let's try first person it feels like there's actually growth being made there Um, but also I think uh, I want to mention one more listener comment from uh, The Evil Remains and he said He's not a fan of combatless horror because he doesn't like that they make him feel helpless. Uh, He'd rather be able to fight with limited resources than absolutely nothing and uh, resorting to only running away. And while he found a game like Outlast to be scary, that always running away and hiding wasn't satisfying for him. Um, And I think I largely agree, but I do think that helplessness in horror can be really effective, right? And we talked about that uh, earlier in terms of finding that good balance between giving players combat agency, but also still allowing them to never quite feel completely safe. And, you know, bring it back to uh, Alien Isolation being the best example of that, I think. And that's the balance that I'm always looking in horror games, right? I never want combat to feel tacked on. I don't want it to feel like, well, of course there has to be combat here because so many of these other games that are horror that have combat were successful. It needs to feel like you get these brief stints of that empowerment and that in a moment's notice, that can be replaced with that helplessness, even though you're holding a souped-up SMG or shotgun or something of that effect. And that's one of the elements that I'm always looking for in my horror games that uh, never let me feel too safe, because then otherwise it's like, well, if the game is not built from the ground up as being a first-person shooter or something like that, kind of like Fear, like I mentioned, and it's more built as a horror game, but then the combat mechanics feel kind of tacked on, that doesn't necessarily always sustain itself for the entirety of its run, as uh, I think we've stated with a couple of our examples. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the thing about if you add, you know, if you add a gun to a game, that you just immediately dedicated a ton of resources to making that feel good. Like you don't just yeah. add a gun the way you would add like a photo mode or even like a crafting system. <laughs> like if you add a gun, yeah. that is like. Uh, you know, people are going to instantly be comparing it with like dedicated first person shooters. And yeah. so if it feels yeah. bad, it's noticeable because you can play games where that is all you do, you know? So mm-hmm. like if you're going to add combat, you have to sort of <laughs> make sure you have the time and resources to do it right. Cause otherwise it will be very noticeable that it isn't up to snuff. Yeah. I'm, I was thinking, Actually, when we're trying to think of games that don't do it right, we I came across a game in my head that 
has done both for me where it, sometimes it works and sometimes mm-hmm. and a lot of the time it doesn't and that's day z mm. where you know mm. now for me personally just to sort of go back a bit um i was a pc head you know 20 years ago and stuff like uh, operation flashpoint which you know led to armor which led you know, to daisy uh, you know, operation flashpoint was such a fascinating game to me in you know you were in these bleakly wild open environments and you could come up against enemy forces and you get killed in one shot or two shots you know like that you had to plan everything so meticulously and that was so thrilling and the best part of DayZ is that is that like if you get caught by another player and they're better equipped than you you're fucked unless they are feeling merciful and, and that's the danger and the excitement about it on the other side of it actually killing anything that isn't a player is fucking awful and, and the zombie stuff just you, know, you can tell it's something that has been added to something else you know mm-hmm. this is supposed to be a military combat sim not you know a game with running zombies and it so tells in those moments and I hate that about it because the concept is so great and really gets what I want from a zombie game experience and, you know I've put many hours into it searching for just that and you know you know when you see those steam reviews of like players who play like thousands of hours of stuff and then say fucking shit hated it <laughs> like, like, it's like that it, it, I get it in this sort of instance because it's that you're searching for something you, you, you get the cut on the cusp of something that you feel like if this clicks, if I can find the thing in this game that really clicks and works exactly how I want it for long enough, I'm going to love it and it's going to be amazing. And Daisy just never quite gets there. It's always like, and I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that you know its creator kind of just sort of shrugged his shoulders and left it to other people after a while. And it, you know, that's the big, you know, which seems to be historic at this point. But it's annoying because you you really want it to be something else and you can forgive its roughness and its you know jankiness because it's such a fresh and exciting idea at the time and here we are with this thing that's like we could do so much more we could make this so much more impactful and again it's one of those games that kind of got left behind by the time I actually got to consoles it was like is there any point you know other games have done this kind of thing better now and just, it, it, you lost your place and you're a curio at this point. And, mm. you know, I remember, you know, Daisy being at its peak where, and the excitement about the interactions with other people. It was like crossing MMOs, you know, like in a traditional sense, with the survival genre, which was, you know, becoming this big thing anyway. And to me, that was so exciting because these are two things I was like... Mm. You know, I don't. I wasn't really interested in MMOs that much, but to have it in this zombie theme and have the survival aspect of it, it would have been great if that if that had all worked out. But yeah, it's it feels like it got to the planning stage and that was it. You know, they did a, a basic concept and dumped it out and said, "There you go." It, they add stuff to it in recently, but it's still essentially not 
a finished article. It disappoints me more than anything, more than Escape Dead Island, you know, because it, it was something I was so happy to see as a concept and I wanted so much more from it. Yeah, I think combat, if you're going to be including it, there needs to be a methodology behind it. And that might sound just kind of like <laughs> pretentious or whatever. But it's, I think that it can't be viewed as an afterthought because it that is the one element that no matter how well of an environment you craft or atmosphere or tension or monster design and whatnot, it's going to age the worst if it is very much viewed as this afterthought. Yeah. And I think that that's an element that has made something like um, Amnesia hold up all these years later, right? We've seen how many countless uh, knockoffs or ripoffs, what have you, that have tried to include combat to that. And it feels like an afterthought in an attempt to be somewhat different, trying to differentiate themselves from what they're clearly trying to clone. And not only are they not able to replicate the true horror of Amnesia, The Dark Descent, but also the combat sticks out like a sore thumb because it's so out of place here. And I think that that's, and that's true of all genre, I think, in a lot of ways. Whether, I mean, how many knockoff sort of just like first-person shooters are there on whatever, Call of Duty, Medal of Honor, whatever, uh, over the years where it's like, well, not only have you not crafted a world that feels like a believable wartime setting or something to that effect, but also it plays like shit. <laughs> that, that stands out pretty, it's pretty apparent from the jump. And I think even more so with horror, because you can still achieve one over the other, right? One, you could have that combat combat that's satisfying that fits within that world. You could have that world that's terrifying and whatnot. But with horror, especially, it feels like every single element of that needs to really be fine tuned in a way to make it work in a yeah. way that, I mean, it, it's funny that horror is always viewed as this genre that is like, quote unquote, easy to knock off or something, but it really isn't because if you don't pay the proper attention that one of those particular elements is due, then it stands out in a big way and it really pales in comparison to anything that it's trying to uh, to replicate or even be in the same conversation as. And, you know, again, taking it back to frictional, I think it's apparent from early on, right? They had, might have had that you're being hunted in uh, Soma and whatnot, but like ditching combat from the outset of their development career and realizing like, hey, we're going to listen to what pe the feedback people are giving us and really put all of our eggs in the basket that from the jump was pretty strong. And I think over the course of their uh, existence, right, they have really refined that to what Neil and I thought was their best entry yet. And it makes me very happy for the future. And hopefully that game will get a little bit more of its uh, proper due and whatnot. And yeah. it's great to hear, Andrew, that you're diving into a Dark Descent for the first time. And, you know, you've got the rest of their catalog to dive into. I'd be really interested to think to hear what you think about uh, Soma, which is them maybe trying to deviate a little bit, but it still really rings true to that attention to atmosphere and really great blending of sci-fi and uh, horror storytelling, in, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, I played, I played um, like, the first hour of Soma the other day. So I've, mm. I've seen it basically until you get to the... You wake up and the... Mm. And then... You wake up in the facility, and then I played like right. like ten minutes of that, and then uh, quit. But I, yeah, I played the the first little bit of it, and I think that game, the beginning of that game, where you go and see this doctor, uh, mm -hmm. sort of highlights some of the the difficulties that I think smaller teams have with these games, which is that it's really hard to make um, realistic looking people, you yeah. know, and so. <laughs> 
a lot of games just put you in an environment that's empty so they don't have to do that and can make really good-looking environments but don't have to worry about making human faces. I just played the beginning of Outlast 2 as well, and what struck me about that game is how high the production values seem. Like, it opens with you sitting in the helicopter with your uh, girlfriend as you're flying in to do... um, you know, film this segment in, in this area where there's been a murder. And, like, I w- was amazed by how, like, graphically impressive their, you know, human characters looked. So it's like, sometimes if you have, like, a standout hit the way that Outlast was, you can get the budget to do that kind yeah. of stuff. But otherwise, you're going to be putting these in areas where you're not running into people. You're just picking up papers or hearing audio logs mm-hmm. that communicate the story <laughs> to you, which is fine. It just limits the kind of stories that you can tell to places that have been abandoned for some reason or another yeah i mean i think of um everybody's gone to the rapture where the idea yeah the solution was to just replace everyone with like ethereal glows and sparkles and (laughs) it worked you know for better or worse it's it's a good workaround and yeah we've discussed this already it's like the best uh games in this sort of genre understand what they are and try to better Mm. themselves from it and don't include things just to please, you know, a wider audience. They're, they're trying to make something that matters and it has some sort of insight and evolution to it, if you will. Yeah, and I think if we've uh, learned anything in chatting, it's that uh, it's easier to make fucked up monsters than fill a game with people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but... but what if they're the same? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The monsters are really the people alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, Andrew, it's been great picking your brain about combatless horror. It's a genre that I think a lot of people might view as it being easy to do. But if anything, it really is more difficult in some mm. regards to do than uh, combat being in horror games and combat being the staple of video games as early as there's been games. But if anything, you know, in talking about it, like I would say both are equally difficult for a variety of different reasons. But uh, before we let you go, I wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, either plug uh, your work or your Twitter handle because people should really check out your work if they're into not just horror games, but games in general, because I think you do a great job of highlighting uh, not only maybe some lesser known games, but also just getting to the root of uh, what makes certain games stand out. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, if you want to read like the most recent stuff I've been doing, that's all been a game, but I've done some news there, and I also reviewed uh, Solar Ash recently, which is actually a game, you know, we talked a little bit about like games that have sort of dreamy level design. Like That's a game that has very dreamy level design, but also has like an internal logic to it, so if you want to see that done well, that's a game that, that does it pretty well. Um, and then my Twitter handle is FunnelChest94. You can find me at FunnelChest94 on the bird site. So go give me a follow. <laughs> and definitely give uh, his podcast, Party Games, a, uh, a listen when you guys get a chance. But thank you again. And Neil, as always, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at SafeRoomPod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.